I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. I was naive enough to believe that I would be able to just present all of my proof of actual innocence, that they would investigate adequately, and so that I wouldn't be going to prison because I was a good person, I hadn't done anything wrong. In the back of your mind, you say, well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. The prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. You have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, in that moment, unchecked authority. Don't presume that people are guilty when you see them on TV because it may just be a dirty DA that is trying to rise upward. This is Wrongful Conviction. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today's episode will make your blood boil and it will blow your mind. So settle in because this is going to be a crazy ride. Guilty. One word sealing Lamont McIntyre's fate. Lamont McIntyre, age 17 in 1994, has so far been imprisoned for 22 years. 22 years ago, two young men, 21-year-old Danielle Quinn and his 34-year-old cousin, Donald Ewing, were gunned down in a horrible double homicide. Six hours after the murders, police arrested McIntyre but never searched his house for evidence. Moreover, it was a trial in which prosecutors offered no physical evidence tying McIntyre to the crime, no motive, no connection between him and the victims, no weapon, no fingerprints, nor did Kansas City, Kansas police even request search warrants to find any of that material. A retired officer who reviewed the case calls the investigation grossly deficient. Most notable is that the family of the victims for 22 years have steadfastly insisted that he is innocent. Other witnesses, also relatives of the victim, insist that as soon as they saw McIntyre sitting at the defense table, they knew he was not the shooter. They told the prosecutor, but were ignored. 
One family member has signed an affidavit claiming that under pressure from police and the prosecutor, she lied at McIntyre's trial. For the first time, a juror is speaking publicly about the case. Greg Lauber says that he now believes that Wyandotte County jury was wrong. They didn't care about anything. They just had their man. And it was enough for the 12-person jury. In deliberations, Lauber says he and another juror were holdouts, but it was late in the day and there was mounting pressure from others who wanted a verdict. Maybe I had an opportunity to you know, do something good on that jury, but I sure didn't do it. I took a coward's way out. It is the speedy investigation and prosecution of that crime in this place that a team of exonerators now insist was also the focus of a terrible injustice. Lamont McIntyre, age 17 in 1994, has so far been imprisoned for 22 years, convicted and given two consecutive life sentences for a crime they say he never committed. Well, I'm just going to say I'm, I'm really happy that today joining us to discuss the insane case of Lamont McIntyre. We have with us Lamont's attorney, Cheryl Pilot, as well as retired FBI Special Agent Al Jenerich. Cheryl and Al, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. We're glad to be here. Happy to be here. And we will be hearing later on in the episode from Lamont, who will be calling in from President Kansas, where he has been incarcerated for approximately 24 years now since he was a teenager for a crime that he did not commit. Now, let's go back to the beginning. On April 15th, 1994, there were two men sitting in a Cadillac in -hmm. Kansas City, Kansas, when they were approached by a man with a shotgun. These facts are not in dispute, right? Correct. And what we know is that four shots were fired into the car, killing the passenger, Danielle Quinn, instantly, and the driver, Donald Ewing, who died later in the hospital. And... Amazingly, within six hours, they managed to find a guy who had nothing to do with the crime, Lamont McIntyre, who was 17 at the time, and he was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder in spite of a total lack of any physical evidence connecting him to the crime. How did this happen, Cheryl? And Al, jump in whenever you want. Uh, Lamont was arrested and prosecuted after police obtained three interviews from eyewitnesses. One of them uh, never testified. But the taped interviews of these eyewitnesses in a very serious crime, obviously, where someone can go to prison for the rest of their life, amounted to a total of 20 taped minutes. And one of the eyewitnesses was only interviewed for four minutes. Is that an investigation? What is that? So Al, you've done a lot of research and you were in the FBI for quite a while, is that right? I was in the FBI for 25 years. I was a special agent. I specialized in investigating police corruption. I worked in Chicago uh, very successfully and then in Kansas City, Kansas. Agent Jenerich was not involved with this murder case at all when it happened. I knew Mr. Jenerich through other cases, and after he retired, a number of years after he retired, actually, and I was working on trying to achieve Lamont's exoneration, I approached him to talk to him about the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department and things that I had uncovered in my investigation, and it was at that point that Al and I started talking about some of the things he had learned Uh, while working for the FBI, and they 
you know, matched up with some of the things I had uncovered in my investigation. And it was because of that that he became a witness in this case that I hope to use at our hearing. So prior to Lamont's arrest, can we talk about what was happening with this particular cop uh, whose name was Roger Golubsky? Sometime around 1988 or so, I was able to open an investigation into police corruption in Kansas City, Kansas. And as the investigation went on over time, over many years, we developed maybe somewhere between 12 and 15 police officers who were titled uh, subjects of the investigation. Some of it involved civil rights, like beating people up, stealing their shoes when they were walking down the street because the officer liked the shoes. Or in the case of Golubsky, you know, sexual extortion. But most of it involved corruption involving drugs, mostly cocaine. And in the course of this investigation, just by talking to people, which is what I'm pretty good at, over time, you know, a number of people told us about Golubsky extorting sex from black women. And he liked black women. We never developed enough evidence on, on Golubsky to prosecute him. That's the extent of my knowledge about Golubsky, and I had no involvement whatsoever in the, in the murder investigation. Now, I always believed that, that police were good, and the police were on our side, and they're there to protect us all. And so I always find these stories, even as long as I've been working on this issue, and I've got 25 years now of experience, but uh, I always find these stories so just depressing and shocking, and it flips everything upside down. Well. Like you, I was very naive until I went to Chicago, and then I saw you know, police corruption on a massive scale. But then when I got back to Kansas City in 86 and probably got involved in Kansas City, Kansas in 88, you know, I saw the same activity there. It wasn't on the grand scale you know, that, it's, that it's conducted in, in Chicago. It's basically police officers, most of whom are white, picking on minorities, most of whom are black, some of them are Hispanic, because when you're a drug dealer, you know, you can't go to the police or the FBI and say, hey, these cops are stealing my drugs. These cops are stealing my drug money. You basically have to, you have to suck it up. So that's what they do in Chicago. That's what they do everywhere. So Lamont, his troubles really began when his mom was in a car with, I guess, was her boyfriend at the time, Cheryl, right? And Golubsky approached the car and told her to get out and threatened her with arrest or arrest of her boyfriend unless she agreed to come down to the police station. And then the problems really began when she refused to become one of his girls, so to speak, right? Uh, I mean, obviously she was in a, a, te- a terrible situation where she's very vulnerable not able to defend herself from a cop who's willing to go to almost any lengths to fulfill his desires. She had a a tremendous problem, and she decided that she wanted to maintain her dignity, really, right? And so what seems like happened is that as a consequence of her actions, Golubsky decided that he would target and frame her son, in something that is so evil that you just sit there and say, I, I don't, you know, it makes me want to quit the human race. And not only that, but he was also represented by an attorney who was 
so incompetent that he was disbarred not too long after the trial. So what kind of a chance did he really have? Well, <laughs> that's a lot to untangle right there. There was an encounter uh, that Lamont's mother had with the detective some years earlier. I mean, it was years actually before the double homicide happened. And at the time of the double homicide, my client was inexplicably dragged into the case. One of the eyewitnesses told the police she thought the shooter looked like a Lamont dating her niece. Police never bothered to find out what Lamont that was. They don't go ask the niece what Lamont that was. They simply put another Lamont, and it's undisputed, an entirely different Lamont, my client, into the case and somehow obtain this identification. What's interesting about the lineup, and I've never seen anything like this before, is three of the five photos were of young male members of the McIntyre family. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What? It's one perpetrator. It's not like they, somebody said there were three brothers that were involved. It's one perpetrator. You know, and then the justice system, we know, has a tendency to chew people up and spit them out when they are poor, particularly if they're minorities and underrepresented. It's really, it's not a fair fight, is it? Well, I mean, this, this whole thing um, was an impossible battle for Lamont uh, to begin with. I mean, first of all, the investigation itself I don't think really qualified as, as a true investigation because so little was done. No evidence of motive was ever uncovered. Uh, there was no physical evidence that tied Lamont to the crime. There was not even any evidence that he knew the two victims. Their backgrounds of the two victims and, and who might have a motive to harm them, that was never investigated. There was an eyewitness directly across the street who was never interviewed, whose, whose mother said, you know, she, she knows who the suspect is. I mean, the, the failures and lapses and irregularities in this case just go on and on. I mean, other than the 20 minutes of taped interviews from the eyewitnesses, there was very little else. And the only evidence at trial against Lamont were two eyewitnesses who were we contend, confused, coerced, uh, manipulated, threatened into implicating Lamont McIntyre. And that was it. There was now, nothing else. So you have this cop and this department that is so corrupt isn't even the right word, but that's engaged in so many illegal activities. And isn't it ironic and tragic that Lamont is in prison living in hell after 24 years, and this this cop who was, from what I've read, raping people, robbing people, dealing drugs, protecting drug dealers, he's out. How how is that? I mean, and that must not not sit well with you with your whole background either. What I'm really hoping for, what our entire team is is hoping for, and what we have sought for a long time is a very full investigation into the activities of this detective. There needs to be an investigation by people who have the power and the authority and the ability to 
follow all the leads, develop information, compel the testimony of witnesses, and obtain other evidence. Al, let me, let me turn to you for a second, because we have not had somebody with your uh, background and experience on the show before. And I would venture to say that you had a very, very difficult and dangerous job, right? I mean, investigating cops, particularly when you're investigating cops who've got a lot to hide, makes you a very unpopular person, I would think. So looking back on it, how did this manage to go on for so long without somebody coming along and saying, uh, you know, besides you, hey, hey, we're not going to tolerate this? They don't give a shit. At the time we were doing these investigations, the police chief of Kansas City, Kansas, a guy named Tom Daly, he had previously been indicted by the federal strike force for extorting money at a whorehouses along the Kaw River in Kansas. He was doing that allegedly when he was a captain. He was acquitted because it was a real weak case. But after being acquitted for extortion, uh, the city wound up eventually making him the chief. Is that the actions you know, of a responsible a city administration or a police department? So you have the chief over there, Tom Daly, who had previously been indicted by the feds. He despised the federal government. He hated the U.S. Attorney's Office and, uh, and the FBI. And he's the chief. He was part of it. So you have this guy, Golubsky, who in that scenario is operating basically with impunity, right? Because he knows his chief doesn't give a shit. And with the chief having literally, well, from what it sounds like, gotten away with that particular pattern of activity, as well as I'm sure other things that he was doing, the people underneath him are probably thinking, hey, this is great. No one's going to touch us. And they're right. And nobody did. So how frustrating was that for you? There you are really fighting an unwinnable war, right? You're, you're there trying to protect the public from the police force with a chief of police who not only doesn't give a fuck, but doesn't want that. He, he wants you, he probably wants you the fuck out of his hair so he can just go and run his little, you know, run the streets how he wants to. Right. When I started working over there, you had a person, you know, some guy, I, I knew a lot of people in the county jail, and um, they would say, so-and-so confronted me and stole my money, stole my drugs. You go, what, what's the cop's name? I, I don't know his name. You know, what's he look like? Well, you know, he's some white guy. Well, you go to the police, the police did not have photographs of their police officers. So if a, if a victim came in there alleging that so-and-so officer robbed from me, extorted me, they didn't even have photographs to show people so they could identify who the police officer was. So good luck. You know, through the U.S. Attorney's Office, through uh, Julie Robinson, who was a prosecutor at the time, we subpoenaed photographs of every sworn officer in the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, and there was hell to pay for that. I was almost removed from the investigation because of that. I, you know, I, I think one of the problems is that other law enforcement officers don't want to investigate law enforcement. And as a general rule, I think they find it distasteful, something they would rather avoid. And there is a tendency to minimize misconduct. I, I found that really pretty shocking. Not in light of everything else we're talking about, but I could see how you would. And it's it really gets easier and easier to see how these wrongful convictions are so common 
I mean, here we have an interesting situation, right? We're talking to Al, who's in there with his badge, working for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and basically being told, go fuck himself. So what chance does a 17-year-old black kid from the poorer side of town, what chance does he have against this blue wall, this blue monster that was out to get him? He had no chance. So now... Fast forward to 24 years later, Lamont sits in a prison studying, reading, by all accounts, a model prisoner, somebody who maintains a positive outlook in spite of this, you know, what can only be described as the worst fate that can befall an individual to be incarcerated for something he didn't do for the rest of your life. But now we have hope, right? I mean, he has hope, thanks to you and the years of work that you've done on this case, and Al and other brave people who have devoted their time and in some cases probably even risked their own personal safety to try to get justice in this case. What does it look like now? What happens next? Tell us what's going on. We have a uh, evidentiary hearing coming up in October. And we intend to uh, present somewhere between 40 and 50 witnesses who provide very powerful testimony on various aspects of the case. There was almost nothing really to support the conviction to begin with, nothing other than the testimony of the two eyewitnesses. And I believe that has been thoroughly shredded at this point through recantations and admissions and the result of other investigation. And we are also focusing on the very troubling misconduct in the case. It is intimately connected to how the investigation was conducted. And we're gonna bring all that out and uh, show how we believe this went wrong. And we very much hope to be successful. What's the date of the hearing? October 12th. October 12th, and is this in a federal court? We are in Wyandotte County District Court, which is a state court. My client is litigating what's called a successive petition under 60-1507, and you have essentially a procedural barrier to get over before you can get back into court. But we do have this evidentiary hearing scheduled that we are very, very excited about. One of the most compelling things about the case, we haven't mentioned this yet, is that the families of both victims have always known my client is innocent and are very much squarely supporting the quest to free him. (laughs) They know that they did not get justice. Their families did not get justice. And that, Cheryl, in your experience, that's not a common thing, right? I mean, most of the cases I've seen Even in the face of what could be overwhelming evidence to the contrary, the victim's family sometimes stick with what they've been told all along because they just can't, they can't even process the idea that they may have been lied to and that the wrong person may have been serving time for for the murder of their loved one. So in this case, this is a very unusual scenario, isn't it? Uh, It is. And one of the eyewitnesses is related to both of the victims. And she, her family, and the, the family of the second victim, to whom she's a bit more distantly related, have always told me that they have known from the beginning that the authorities got the wrong man. They have always known this. They've made periodic efforts to correct this, to address this, to try and get some justice, all without success. And they were never, testi- they were never called to testify at trial? 
Uh, one of them was not called to testify. Another has admitted that she lied, that she was coerced. The other eyewitness seems, frankly, very perplexed by her testimony, and it's, it's very clear that it's an eyewitness uh, misidentification based on, on manipulation. And we know also that had this trial taken place 20 years later or so, with everything that's known now about the unreliability of eyewitness identification, there's a very good chance that that would have been discredited because there was no other evidence connecting him to the crime. You take a person um, who's traumatized, who has just witnessed a really horrific event, and uh, they can be pretty easy to pressure or manipulate. And in fact, this witness provided in a taped statement my client's last name, a man she did not know and had never heard of, which raises the very interesting question of who gave her the name? <laughs> it was undisputed at trial that she did not know my client, yet the fact that there was an original tape statement where she provided his name never came out. That was never admitted at trial. She also stated wrongly that my client was the Lamont who had dated her niece at trial, undisputed that that was not true. It was an entirely different Lamont who was, in fact, identified by his name to the jury, an entirely different person. So, I mean, the whole thing is, is troubling beginning to end, really a perfect storm of chaos and horror and misconduct, things being done improperly. And if there wasn't already enough to chew on, this is the part that really just sets me off. His court-appointed attorney, Gary Long, was on supervised probation at the time of the trial for failing to diligently handle three prior cases. He was suspended from the bar a couple years later for failure to adequately handle a separate criminal case, and he was disbarred in 1998. How is it even possible that in a life-or-death situation, because this is really somebody's life that they were playing with, right? How could it be in this great country of ours that you take somebody and you say, you know what, we're going to give you a lawyer who's already messed up three times. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know. It you know, doesn't make any sense Well, to when me. I said nobody gives a shit, now, now, do you understand what I mean? Do you know, uh, that that, you know that that Tara Moorhead, do you know she's now a federal prosecutor? Yeah, so Tara Moorhead you know was the prosecutor in this case. Obviously didn't see anything wrong with her prosecuting a case in which a young man's life was at stake in a very real way in front of a judge with whom she had carried on an affair a few years earlier. I think most reasonable people would agree that one or the other should have been recused from this particular scenario because even if they were saints, and obviously they weren't because she's also the same woman, from what I've read, who threatened a witness who tried to come forward with the truth with losing custody of her own children, but yeah, so now she's moved up the ladder. Seems like all the bad guys have won here. Al, what the fuck? <laughs> well, I, th I think Tara Moorhead's currently married to a police officer. I think there's some other prosecutors over in the federal U.S. Attorney's Office that are married to other police officers. So you're not going to expect them to investigate police corruption, are you? Well, I guess that would make it tricky, wouldn't it? They're not going to do it, and, and they don't. I mean, there, there's so much that uh, could be 
investigated, that ought to be investigated. And, you know, I, I, I should also point out that sexual misconduct uh, among police officers is not unusual in some departments. When you have poor and vulnerable people encounter folks with ultimate authority over them, ultimate authority in that particular moment, you know, those things can happen all too easily, and they do, and they happen frequently. You know, when I was an agent, I'm, I'm about six foot four, I had a gun, a, a badge, and a radio and everything. At nighttime, when I was on my way home or on the weekends, I would not drive through Kansas City, Kansas, unless I was accompanied by another FBI agent. So because you thought they might have run you off the road or something else? They could do anything. They could pull me over and not say, and they don't know who I was, and they could say I pulled a gun, and they could shoot me. So I have all that power and authority. What does some little black kid on the street have? And I was afraid. That's, uh, I got to take a minute to process that. That's a very powerful statement, and uh, it, it really does bring it into perspective. I hope that in exposing the story of Lamont and some of the things that you shared, out, that people, you know, get their backs up and get, get angry and get involved. These are just people. They're just regular people. And they're, they're being so terribly abused and victimized by people who are supposed to protect them. I, I don't, it makes me sick. I was just say that the fear and the terror that some of the citizens experience cannot be overstated. I mean, you have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, as I said, in that moment, unchecked authority. There's enormous fear of the police and enormous, sometimes unmovable resistance to getting involved in anything that has to do with the criminal justice system. I, I've spent some years, honestly, just earning the trust of some people in the community so that they will sit down and speak with me so that we can investigate the case. Nobody wants anything to do with a case. You say courthouse, people walk the other way. They don't want anything to do with that. And ultimately, we have been successful in securing some very good witnesses because they did want to help someone they viewed as innocent. And, uh, you know, I should point out here that all of the street talk we have ever heard in the community is that Lamont is innocent, the guy who got wrongfully convicted. It's like everyone knows, the whole community knows, the victim's families know, everyone knows Lamont did not do this. Everyone knows. Um, I'm sure people are listening and doing and saying, God, this is horrible, but what can I do? How, how could I possibly help? So if you have any ideas on that to share with the audience, Cheryl, let's start with you and then go to Al and, and give you last words. Take it away. Uh, in, in a general sense, I'd say support honest policing. Be grateful for the good and honest officers that you know. And when you see wrongdoing done by someone with a badge, point it out. Don't be afraid to make a complaint and hope and pray. And I don't know, make phone calls, write letters and ask for an investigation of uh, the misconduct that uh, has come to the surface in this case. You know, the problem is working police corruption, you're not very popular. And even the work I did here in uh, Kansas City, Kansas, you're not very popular. I never worried about being popular, you know, so I, it didn't affect me. 
But there's a lot of agents that simply don't want to do it because they want to be popular. They want people to like them. Yeah, we need we need more guys like you out there because otherwise it's it's the system's. Uh, uh, it, it feels. I mean, I'm so depressed after talking to you and, and hearing that it's actually even worse than I thought it was. It makes me insane, but it, it energizes me. Okay, thanks, you guys. I'll be there in the courtroom with you in spirit on October 12th. Thank you. Thank you. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You have a prepaid call from... Lamont. An inmate at Kansas Department of Corrections, Lansing Correctional Facility. To accept this call, press or say five. To refuse, this call will be recorded and subject to monitoring at any time. You may begin speaking now. We just concluded a disturbing and really terrifying interview with Al Jenrich, the retired FBI agent, and Cheryl Pilot, who are doing such incredible work, heroic work, on a case that keeps me up at night, a case of a man named Lamont McIntyre. And now we have on the phone from Maximum Security Prison in Kansas, Lamont himself. Lamont, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Lamont, I want to go back to the beginning, when you grew up and how this all started. I've seen photos of you with your family. It looked like you had not an easy but a happy childhood. Is that fair? Yeah, I did. Can you just describe what it was like? I've heard you talk about Christmas and stuff. Uh, yeah, we was tight-knit. You know, it was like my mother was just the only parent in the house. And we was close, me and my siblings. and We did everything together. We stayed in one house. You know, we uh, took care of each other. So growing up for me was, my family was a big thing. We didn't really fight about a lot of stuff. You know, it was me and my, my three brothers and my sister, my older sister. My mother worked a lot, so my sister kind of watched after us a little bit. So some other family members, I used to go to my family members' house, my uncles, and be around them. My mother was at work. I kind of still stayed around family outside my home, so real family-oriented. 
And where you grew up, you had no idea at this time that the police force was really as corrupt as anyone could possibly imagine until this terrible incident occurred. And I want to go back to that. What happened? You were a 17-year-old kid going along with your life, trying to make it in in a difficult place. And then one day, out of the blue, you get arrested and don't even know what's going on? Or how, what happened? Uh, that's exactly what happened. I was, it was a typical day. It was like a Friday, typical day. I was enrolled in a, a Downey College program where there's an alternative school where they would help you get your high school diploma, and then they'd get you in uh, college. So it was like a little degree program I was a part of, and um, it was just a Friday. I wasn't paying attention to time, or I wasn't looking at uh, what I was doing. I wasn't thinking about it because it was a typical day. And uh, I get a call, phone call, saying the police is over my grandmother's house looking for me. Uh, I call my mother. We go to the police station, and they start talking about two murders. You know what I'm saying? They were asking questions about an event that happened that day. And I had no answers for them because I didn't know what they were saying or what they were talking about. So from that moment... I was arrested, charged, and uh, eventually convicted of two murders that I had nothing to do with and knew nothing about. And we know now that they were deliberately targeting you because of this particular police officer who was up to all kinds of criminal activity himself. And that's the irony of this, is that he belongs in jail, and I'm hoping that by the end of this, that's exactly what's going to happen. But the idea that this system, this so-called justice system, had made a decision that you were going to be their guy. There was this double murder, right? Two guys sitting in a car. They were involved in drug activity. They were dealers. We now know also that one of them had been beaten by his the guys he was working for in the drug business, right? He was working as a doorman in a crack den, <laughs> And he had feared for his life, and in fact, he had good reason to, because I guess he had, from what I've learned, he, has been, he had been stealing from them. So they had every reason to know that this was a, a drug hit, and you weren't involved in that gang or that business. Did you know these guys? Uh, I didn't know the witnesses. I didn't know the uh, victims. And I wasn't connected to it at all. That's why I so so hard for me to understand how something like that could happen because and I was I was forefront I was forward about everything I didn't try to hide nothing I was I was open to what they wanted to ask me about or whatever because I knew that what they was talking about at that time I had nothing to do with it and I wasn't involved nor was I responsible for the death of those men so I still don't know to this day like what happened like or how I became the, the main suspect or I don't know how that happened still to this day. I don't know what what the police officer's motive was to uh, to implement me or to plan it on me. or I still don't know to this day what happened. Well, it does seem like now with everything we've learned that the officer involved, the first one who arrived on the scene was an officer named Golubsky, and he had it out for you because of a family situation, right? I mean, he is a white guy who had a proclivity for women of color. And when he didn't get his way, he would exact revenge. And so 
what it seems like is that in this particular case, he targeted you because your mom wasn't having any part of that. And that's what makes this particularly sinister and sick. You end up going to trial. And I find it interesting, among all the other things in your case, that they offered you a plea bargain, right? And you didn't take it. Yeah, I wasn't interested in the plea bargain. I didn't even know I, didn't even know I was there. So it's like they telling me this stuff. They're saying something happened. I'm sitting there and I'm listening. They keep saying things to me, but I can't understand how I was sitting in that situation and I didn't know nothing about the crime itself. So a plea bargain was far from my mind. I wasn't thinking about a plea bargain. And why I find that and why I brought that up, Lamont, and I've seen the mugshot picture of you, and it really hurt my heart because I could see in your face just how confused you were and scared of a situation that you couldn't possibly imagine was happening at that time. I also would think that if you were guilty and they're offering you a deal and you know your chances of winning in the court are going to be low because they have all these cops and everybody else that's going to testify against you, you would have taken the plea bargain. Anybody with a right mind would take a plea bargain. You're not crazy, are you? No, I'm not. Right. You don't, you don't, sound, <laughs> cra- you don't sound crazy at all. So in a situation like this, I mean, we have, in this country, over 90% of cases end up in plea bargains. So had you been guilty, that would have been a very logical thing to do. But as an innocent person, and probably somebody who's still trusted in the system, you went forward with your right to a trial. And that's where things get really squirrely, too, because you were represented by a guy who they knew, your court-appointed lawyer, they knew this guy was incompetent because he had already been disciplined for three previous cases that he had completely botched. It almost sounds like they did it on purpose. They assigned a guy who didn't go and interview witnesses, who didn't, really didn't do anything he was supposed to do. And, and what was that like? Were you aware at that time that this guy wasn't, I mean, I don't even know if he was really on your side, but I mean, as you're watching these proceedings, what were you thinking? himself like a, a, a lawyer. He presented himself like a person that's there on my behalf to take care of this business and he seemed real professional at first. So I didn't know what to expect because I've never been in that situation before anyway. So his first impression was for me was a good impression because I didn't know what a lawyer was supposed to do or I was so ignorant to the law and how things work. I just believed in the justice system at that time. I really did. I thought there was no possible way being an innocent person or a person that has nothing to do with that crime, that I would be found guilty. So I didn't really pay too much attention to the credibility of this lawyer. It just didn't dawn on me that I would be found guilty of the crime that I had nothing to do with. So I didn't really think about it in, in those terms. I was just thinking, you can give me any lawyer, anybody from anywhere, and it'd be okay because once they realized they had the wrong person, it'd get ironed out in trial. That's what I was thinking. But I didn't plan on, I didn't think that people would get on the stand and lie, they were going to fabricate, and I didn't think that was going to happen. I had no idea that they had already made up in their mind that I was going to be the scapegoat for this particular crime. So that was me being ignorant of the law and how things worked in the justice system. I believed in the justice system at that time. I, I really did. I think all of us do when we're kids, especially brought up in a good home like you were. You're brought up to believe that, that people are good and that the system is is going to work for you. And then you had a lawyer who, had he been 
competent, I still think, would have won your case in spite of all this because of the simple fact that it was an easy case. The witnesses were not credible at all. We now know that they also withheld exculpatory evidence, and I'm sure that's going to come to light next month when you have your hearing. So you really didn't have a fair chance, especially not with a lawyer who was incompetent. And ultimately, let's not forget that this particular lawyer was disbarred not too long after your trial. And again, for the listeners out there, think about that. This is a guy who had been disciplined in numerous cases prior to Lamont's and then ultimately gets disbarred when the extent of his gross incompetence is brought to the Supreme Court of Kansas, the attention of the Supreme Court, and then he voluntarily gave up his license to practice law. And that wasn't the end of the nightmare. We now know, too, that your appellate lawyer was disbarred. I mean, you you can't even make this stuff up. So what happened, like, now you're in the courtroom, the jury goes out, The arguments have been made. You saw these witnesses get up and lie. You saw these police officers get up and lie. Your defense made whatever arguments they made. Did you believe that they would come back and declare you innocent? I did. I did. Every fiber of my being, I did. I just didn't know that. I didn't know that people can. The jury did the the jury thing, like the jury selection and how courts ran and. I had no idea that this is how the system worked. I didn't know that. They found me guilty based on false evidence or the kind of evidence that was presented by a certain district attorney. So basically what she did was set the stage to make it seem as if I was guilty and I did something wrong and I had a reason for doing it. So the jury heard evidence that didn't really exist. They heard stuff about me that wasn't even about Lamar McIntyre. And she just kind of made stuff up, like told the story and the jury believed it. But at the time before they came back with a guilty verdict, I still didn't think I'd be found guilty because the whole time I'm sitting there and the whole time I'm going through the process of getting to trial, I still had no knowledge of the actual crime. So I'm thinking with my young mind, being naive, that there's no way a jury can find me guilty when I'm really not guilty, when I had nothing to do with it. I'm not tied to it at all. The witnesses, the victims, I'm not tied to it. I wasn't in the area when it happened. So I'm thinking, it'll get signed out. The jury will come back. I didn't think I was ever going to be found guilty. I didn't think that. I was, it was shocking when they came back with a guilty verdict. I was, I was heartbroken. And can you talk about that, that moment, which is the most devastating moment of your life? When they came in, I noticed that no jury, no one looked me in my face. No one looked, looked up. Everyone came in looking down at the floor. So I kind of had an eerie feeling, but I still had hope that it would work out in the right way. So when they read the, the uh, verdict and they said guilty, it's like I seen my whole life flash before me. And I and for that moment I froze and I and I was sitting there and and I stood up and I just remember saying something. I was screaming something, you know, to the effect of I'm not guilty and you got the wrong person, or whatever. And I felt someone holding me or grabbing me from behind, and I was in shock. So I, I didn't really. I was like a lost moment. But I turned around and I see my mother holding me, screaming, crying, like, don't take my baby away from me. Don't take my baby. And, and I'm looking at her and I realize that this is a serious situation. Now I'm, I'm but it still didn't feel real. It, it was my life and my situation, but it didn't feel like my life or my situation. I felt like I was outside of myself looking at this event happening. I couldn't stop it. 
So I was in shock. And that shock lasted for a few years after that. I was in shock. I just couldn't, there was nothing inside of me or my intellect or my experiences in life that prepared me for that moment. It was just something I just couldn't deal with. I just didn't know how to deal with that. So emotionally, I was just distraught. I was hurt. I was I was frustrated. I was confused. I just it was just a, a horrible horrible moment. Man. And when you talk about your whole life flashing in front of you, as a seventeen year old, did you have plans? Did, did you have a career in mind? What was the outlook for the future? Were you still just trying to figure it out? Yeah, it was things I wanted to do. It was just I was I was misguided a lot, and I was just in a place where everybody around me was either dying or going to jail or. I was just in the kind of environment that didn't produce a lot of hope or didn't have, I didn't have a lot of people to look up to or emulate, nothing like that. But I did enjoy taking care of my family. So my life was just basically about trying to take care of my family the best way I knew how or to look out for my loved ones. Or, you know, I had skills and things I could do. Like I was a barber. I was cutting hair since I was 12. Or, you know, I was a comedian. You know, I had these, in the back of my mind, I wanted to be a comedian. And, I had things I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to get to where I wanted to be. But I still didn't think that my life was just of uh, being in prison or going to jail or being in this kind of situation. And I wanted a life. I just didn't know how to attain the kind of life that I wanted. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So now, Lamont, now you're convicted of a double murder and sentenced to life in prison. Where did they take you to? Uh, the process is like from the time you get convicted, stay in the county for about two months, and you go to sentencing. Now, I'm sentenced in Wanda County. They gave me two life sentences to run consecutive. And after that, they sent me to a processing center, which we call RDU, where they, they see you to determine what classification you would be, what custody you would be in. I was considered max custody. So from there, they sent me to prison. They sent me to prison and, uh, yeah. I was in Hutch, that's a, that's a prison in, in Kansas. 
they call it gladiator school. One of those tough prisons, you know, where people, you know, it's a prison. It's like the, the, the worst idea you have a prison is, is that and more. It's, it's a world in its own. It's, 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 it's dark, it's negative, it's tension filled, it's hopeless, it's, it's all those things that produce negativity. I mean, you paint a picture that just really is, yeah, I don't even know what to say to that. Um, it just sounds absolutely terrifying and horrible, especially for somebody so young as you, but for anybody, especially an innocent person. And then I also want to talk about a very unique aspect of your case, which is the fact that it's one of the few cases I've ever seen where the victim's family has been saying for almost the entire time you've been locked up that you are not the guy. Right, that is not something that we see in this business, and I, and I think it's a very brave thing that they've done, that they've stood up for you steadfastly from the beginning. Have they been in touch with you? Have you spoken to them? Nah, they spoke to my legal team, and they spoke to the people who's putting together my my defense and stuff like that. But not personally, I haven't. You know, sounds what I read in the newspaper, or see on the news, or something like that, but. No, I never spoke to nobody like that. They tell me what they tell me. I'm always getting the word on what what's being said, or how the victims feel, or the victims' family feel. So I'm aware. I also wanted to ask, what is a typical day like for you on the inside? How do you get through it? What's the schedule? Uh, typical day. Typical day is uh, readjusting. It's like from one day to the next. It's, finding a, a, a way to get by for one day learn something from my days and then I just try to it just sucks I gotta repeat it like if I have a bad day or I'm frustrated for one day I go to sleep wake up to repeat this day again so I try to find the best I can or get the best I can out of a day because waking up to repeat it is the anxiety that's where all that the worst stuff is knowing that for the last 23 years and 200 something months and 1,100 weeks and 8,000 days, it's the same thing. It, it never changes. So I, I devote my time to reading and studying and writing. I write music, I write poetry. I, I try to keep my mind free as possible. I try to stay out of prison mentally. I try not to, I'm not into prison politics. I'm not in prison mentally, but I'm here. I have to be in my body here, but I try to keep my mind as far from this place as I can. So it's just a bunch of moments of readjusting every day. Like, today is going to be different than tomorrow because I feel different. But I have to readjust, readjust, you know. And like I said, I got a, I got a support team, a, a system of people that's in place that always there for me, that's always supporting me. And I have a lot of love, people that love me and care about me. So I focus on that. That's where my attention goes. So I don't really... It, 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 it's really, it's bad. It used to be a lot worse than it is now. I'm starting to see, I'm coming alive now because I can see a light at the end of this dark tunnel I've been in for so long. So I'm better now, but yeah, it, it wasn't so good before. It's better now, but it was always sad to wake up and have to repeat this same cycle over and over again. That stuff is enough to drive a person crazy. How in the world can somebody in your situation just not give up? You sound like an incredible, incredible person. I got to credit that to, to God and my relationship with God. God always managed to place good people in my life, man. I always had a support system. So all those moments is 
a lot of moments where I felt like, what's the point? You know, to keep going, to wake up every day, to have to deal with the exact same nightmare you try to escape from the night before. But I had my mother, like, she never gave up on me from day one. Like, when the worst moments of my life, you know, I felt like I just couldn't do it no more. I felt like I couldn't take another step. She would show up. And she would grab me and hold me and look me in my face and tell me this is not my life. I'm passing through. This is not my destination. And I, so I had a lot of support from my family. And, and I, I gave my life to God. And I I pray a lot. I meditate a lot. So initially I was kind of in this dark place where I was just so hurt and sad and depressed. And so I kept people kept coming to my life that was like beacons of light and hope for me. And I, and I, and I thank God for all those people who came into my life and supported me and made sure that, uh, I always had something to look forward to because this is a dark place. It's, it's a dark situation where if you don't have enough support for me, it was just support. I had family support. And then years later, Cheryl and Centurion Ministries and Innocent Projects, they kept start coming into my life and they breathe, uh, they breathe life into me. It's like, a second win, and I'm grateful for those people, everybody who supported me, and everybody who uh, put forth effort and go out every day and do something to help me get my life back. I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful for those people. Well, that I mean, that says it all. I mean, it says so much about your your character that I really I, I'm having trouble composing the right words to say, but I am glad that you brought up a number of things. Lamont, can you talk a little bit about the Centurion Ministries and their role, as well as the role that the Innocence Project and which Innocence Project it was that's been able to help to get this this case to the point it is now where we could actually see light at the end of the tunnel? Okay, that, that, was, a, that was a process in itself. Like, I had, I had written so many different Innocent Projects and different people, the, the President of the United States, which was Clinton at the time, I was writing... I even wrote Oprah. I was writing all kind of people trying to get some type of help or some type of support. And uh, after like the 50th, 60th letter, uh, I got a response back from Centurion Ministries in New Jersey, in Princeton, New Jersey. And that was in the first time they, they responded to me. It was in 96, 97. But they told me that my case had to be dead in the water. So it was kind of early in my appeal process. So they said they weren't able to help me at that time. So I continued with my appeal process. So 2001, I contacted them again, and uh, they started corresponding with me. Now, from 2001, they kept writing me, responding, and saying they're not taking my case. They're just looking at it to see if it has any merits, to see if it's a case they can take and possibly win. So from 2001 to 2009, I just corresponded with them. They never promised to take my case. They never said they was going to commit any time or resources to my case. We just corresponded for years. Eight, for eight years, it was a, there was a process of just corresponding. And then in 2009, Tim McClowski came down from New Jersey, sat with me and my mother on visit and said, congratulations, you know, we're taking your case, and uh, we're going to get you out of here. And that was 2009. And we know that the wheels of, of justice, when they're moving in the wrong direction, they move very quickly. But when we're moving back in the right direction, they move very slowly. But nonetheless it does seem like there's a lot of very positive momentum right now. And what about the Innocence Project, Lamont? Which Innocence Project was it that you wrote to? Because there are Innocence Projects all over the country. Right. Uh, Innocence Projects in New York, 
Georgia, California, Topeka. I mean, there were so many different. I was getting addresses. Like, my mother was always finding addresses from me somewhere. So I ended up just sending them to me. Then I write them. I was just writing all over the place. I mean, any place I could. KU, School of Law, different Washburn, School of Law, just different places, like, everywhere. Anywhere I could. If I knew there was an innocent project around, I'm pretty sure I got in contact with them. And most of them responded by saying there's nothing they can do. Some never responded. But Citrion Ministries in Princeton, New Jersey, they responded. You know, they responded. And I've been grateful ever since. Yeah, I mean, the innocent projects around the country, they're all overloaded and overworked and overburdened. And it's important for people to give money to them and also to Centurion Ministries to be able to continue this work. The Centurion Ministries really has done, from what I can tell, great work on your case ever since they got involved and now getting it again to the point where you're going to get your day in court. And I think hopefully this time you're going to get a fair trial with more than competent attorneys, with great attorneys, and the truth will come out. If you even allow yourself, if you allow your mind to go there, what are you dreaming about when you get out? Because I'm convinced you are going to come home, and I'm going to be there fighting right alongside with everybody else. What's the first thing you want to do, and then how do you see the future? Uh, first thing I'm going to do is eat something. I'm going to go eat some breakfast or something. Man. I'm hungry. I stay hungry here, so I'm going to eat something. That's what I fantasize about mostly. I want to eat something, and then from there... I want to have some type of impact or effect on young people making poor decisions that would eventually uh, land them in a situation like this. You know, so I want to just raise any kind of awareness I can about decision making because, you know, had I been taught how to make better decisions for myself, I think even though I was ignorant to the law and this is something that had nothing to do with me and all that, I still could have been making better decisions for myself before this stuff even came about. So. I just want to be able to be there for young people as much as I can so I can I can help them understand that even though you don't do something wrong, even though you don't commit a crime, you can be, you still got to be accountable and you still got to be uh, mindful of the fact that you're out there floating around and you can easily be put in a situation like that if you're not being productive and doing something that's uh, productive out there in life. So I just want to be able to reach the young people as much as I can. And now that this has to be young, just... Anybody, I just want to be able to share my experience and hopefully it'll, it'll help out in any kind of way, you know? Well, I'm going to say I'm this. Um, I'm sure that you will do that and that you're going to have a very positive impact on a lot of people because you have a very rare combination of intelligence and a manner that is so positive and strong but still gentle that I believe that you'll be able to affect a lot of, a lot of young people, and I'm looking forward to watching you do that. There's one other thing I wanted to raise. I'm always amazed when I speak to someone in your situation, and and especially so with you, that you don't seem to be bitter after everything that's happened. And I know you talked about your faith and family and the strength that you get from, from them, but how is it possible that someone can go through this most unimaginable nightmare, still be in it, and yet be as positive and strong as you are now? Well, I have my moments with anger. I have my moments with, uh, I'm still frustrated, but I have my moments with anger, but 
It was always like taking poison, hoping someone else dies from it. I was the only one affected by me being angry. No one else seemed to notice or pay attention to me being angry. So I was just a learning experience. Like being angry doesn't help me. So I just wanted to help myself because I knew, I always knew I wasn't going to be here forever. I knew that eventually the truth would surface and I would have a life outside of these walls. So I devoted a lot of time and energy towards helping myself, not hurting myself. So being angry was something that was a hindrance to me, not a benefit. So I just stood firm on what I believe. That's my life, my life and with God. And I try to stay positive because this place is, you got to keep up with yourself and take care of yourself. And anger and stress and all those things is just shortening your lifespan. And I got life to live. So I just choose, I choose to be positive. I choose to not be angry and allow anger to kill me. I don't want to die in this place and I don't want to have a short life. So I stick firm to what I believe in. I believe in my faith and I believe in meditation. I believe in exercise. I believe in taking care of my mind, body, and soul. And that's what I devote my time to. Wow. Um, um, I don't know what else to say. I know that people are, are, are probably listening to this and feeling the same way I'm feeling that they want to do anything they can to help. Do, do you want people to write? Yeah, that'd be fine. All right, so, um, yeah. yeah, do you have the, the prison ID number and the address to write to? Yeah, okay. That's Lamont McIntyre, number 60558, LCF, PO Box 2, Lansing, Kansas, 66043. Okay, there it is, and hopefully people had a chance to write it down and we'll be able to reach out, and I know hopefully we'll have at least a couple of people listening to the show maybe even in a position to do something to help, aside from offer their their support, their prayers, whatever it may be. Lamont, I'm just going to turn it over to you and say, it's your microphone. What do you want to share with the audience? Well, these, these kind of cases happen uh, more than they should, you know, so it's like a... I always see on TV or Dayline 2020, we see an innocent man so many years in prison, then he get exonerated. And you see this happen time and time again. But what you never, ever see or ever hear about is how much that stuff impacted or affected the families of those people. Like, I had a close-knit family. We was close, and it was a thing. This is not just like me being affected by an event that happened in my life. It affects everyone that's tied to me, love me, or care about me. And it affected my family in a way that it's like it, it hurts me to see how much how much it affected not only me but it's my family and it's difficult because if, if a man has to go through a certain thing by himself that's a, that's his life that's his, his path in life he got to go through that i had to do what i had to do no matter what but when you see somebody you care about being affected by what you had to do or what you had to endure it's, it's a it's a different kind of feeling and it's like people don't really pay attention to that or know about that like when uh district attorneys or uh, being dishonest when they're trying to get convictions and all that. I don't think they take that into consideration how many people they are affecting by just not going by the law, just not being truthful about certain things. It's not just me. Whatever issue, personal issue they may have had about with me, um, my family is affected by that. My brothers, my brothers was kids when all this happened. And they feel like they lost a mother because my mother devoted so much time to trying to uh, get me back out of the system that they felt like they was neglected, so they was affected by that. My older sister was affected. My brother was affected. I mean, everybody was affected. 
and when you try to hold on to something good, even when you try to get something good in this kind of situation, it's still nothing good come from it. It's just always bad. It's always negative. It's always a challenge. It's always hurdles. It's always something. But for the person that's in the middle of it, that's just my experience. But on the outside of it, that's something people don't ever get a chance to see. That's, that's just a harsh, a harsh reality for a person to live based on someone else being incompetent. When all this stuff basically could have been avoided by someone just doing their job or the job people was uh, employed them to do. You know? So I think people should understand that and know that there's a lot of people to be affected by something like that. I think a lot of attention should be brought to this moment and uh, this kind of situation so a lot of people can... Uh, if you ever find another person in that situation, they can be more mindful of that. Try to help in a different kind of way if they could because it's not just about me. It's about everybody who cares about me too. It does have a ripple effect on the whole community. All I can do is tell you that you have, um, you have all my respect and support. And I have a saying, Lamont, you know, I've seen too many miracles to stop believing in miracles. So I'm excited to to watch you be the next one or one of the next ones and we'll never stop fighting for you and for other people in your situation. One minute remaining. I'm looking forward to a positive outcome and to getting to know you on the outside and in the meantime I just all I can say is thank you for being on wrongful conviction with me and sharing your thoughts and strength and wisdom. Thanks for the time. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. I'll see you when you get out. All right. All right, man. Thanks. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.